But today we're going to be in Exodus 4. So we're going to read um, Exodus 4, 1 through 17 together. Oh, and as a way of introduction, because we are reading through this, uh, last week we talked about Moses and the story of Moses at the burning bush, where he encounters the one true God, and he is given this task and told he's going to be the one to go to Egypt, and Moses is wanting to know who is this God that I'm talking to, who's the name I should use, and God says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, and he gives this divine name that we would say in English is Yahweh, and um, this conversation is now continuing. So Moses is on Mount Horeb, he's on holy ground, he's encountering God, and God is giving him his marching orders. And so this is the, the rest of that conversation, verses, or chapter 4, verse 1 through 17. Moses answered God, saying, but suppose... They, this being the Israelites, suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it. And it became a staff in his hand. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, It was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they will not believe these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you. And you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, many of us have heard this story in various forms throughout our lives. And we've heard different morals and lessons brought out of it. 
God, what we're interested in this morning is that we would hear the voice of your Holy Spirit for us right now. You know where we're at. You know the things that we're experiencing and dealing with. And we believe that your word is alive and active. And we ask that it would be so this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So years ago I had the amazing opportunity, not once but twice, to hike the Grand Canyon. One of my favorite spots on the planet that I've been to. And it's not an easy hike, as you can imagine. Uh, it's a big place, and it's a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And you do, when you, you know, when I went there, someone told me, they said, you think the hike up will be hard, but it's actually the hike down. And this proved to be true, because when you're going down, if you're going to camp down there like we were, not only do you have all of your food weight and everything in your backpack, but you're going downhill, and if you, you know, when you walk downhill, you realize how much you use your thighs to kind of hold yourself up. So imagine doing that for like eight hours. You know, that's kind of what it's like going down the Grand Canyon. And so you're very sore, at least I was, and I was young back then. I was very sore both times after that first hike down. And so you, you really need some time down at the bottom to kind of hang out and recover and relax a little bit. Um, and the hike up is no picnic either. I mean, it is a lot of uphill, but the hike down was, was a real challenge. But when you get down and you're done with that initial hike, um, you discover this fabulous world down there at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It's just phenomenal. It's so gorgeous. Um, as you're hiking, you actually descend through many different um, ecological zones. When, you, when we started, the second time I went, we were in the snow on the top and actually sinking at the beginning of the trail through the snow, what we call kind of post-holing with your legs, you know, very difficult. And by the time we get to the bottom, it's, you know, mid-90s and desert, you know, just cactus. So you, you go from everything in between. It's like in a, in a day, you see all of these different um, vegetation zones, biological zones of Arizona. It's, it's fascinating. The snow on the top, the heat of the desert, and then when you get down to the heat of the desert, the ice-cold waters of the Colorado River, which surprised me. But of course, I didn't expect to see snow at the top either. But you think where that snow goes very quickly down to the bottom. So the Colorado was frigid, freezing cold down at the bottom in that heat. So it was a nice relief. And then staying at the bottom, one of my favorite parts, I always tell people about this, was what I call the reverse sunrise. Because when the sun rises, it hits the, you have these massive walls above you. So it hits the top of the canyon first with this brilliant light and red. And it's so dark down below and it creeps downwards at you. So it's, it's kind of the opposite where you normally see the sun kind of coming up. You see this light coming down like it starts in the top of the sky and comes down. And the red walls, it's just brilliant colors. It's so gorgeous. And this, I'm sharing this with you because... I have found in my life to be this to be true, and I'm curious if you have as well, that oftentimes the roads, the best roads, the ones that I remember the most, the ones that were the most amazing, were often also some of the most difficult roads to take. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. That sometimes the most difficult roads end up being some of the best roads. This is true of our journey of faith as well. In the story we're looking at today, Moses is standing at a crossroads in his life and in his journey. He faces the choice of following God to do what God is calling him to do. Or, and I don't think we often think about this, but Moses could have very well said no. And he actually comes very close to that today. We're going to talk about that. And just stayed where he was, doing what he was doing. 
I brought this up a little bit last time. I think sometimes we discount the fact that Moses had established a life where he was. He had flocks he was caring for. He had some position in the family. He had married a woman who apparently was amazing. And he had a child. So Moses has a life and now God is saying, we want you to go back to where you came from years ago. And we want you to do this very difficult task of confronting one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful man in the world at the time, the Pharaoh, right? So in this story, I want to look at four excuses and four promises. Moses gives four excuses to God, and I want to talk about four promises that we have and that we see of God. So these, we're going to see these. If you're a note-taker person, you can write these down. I'll be naming these again. But the first one, we're going to go back just a little bit. We're going to look at chapter 3, verse 11. And this is where, and some of these are paraphrases. We'll look at them directly. But this is where Moses basically says, I'm nobody. You know, who am I? Right? That's his first excuse. In 4.1, uh, Moses says, they won't believe me. Israelites aren't going to believe me when I say speak to them. 4.10, Moses says, I'm not a spokesman. I'm not a good speaker, God. And in 4.13, Moses says, somebody else will do it. It doesn't have to be me. Right? So let's look at the first one. This is in chapter 3, verse 11. So again, just going back just a little bit here. <clears throat> Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And then God says, I will be with you. We've talked about this one. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Um, this is Moses basically saying to God, God, I'm nobody. You know, I used to be somebody. I'm sure Moses is thinking, but I'm nobody. Who am I to do this job that you're telling me to do? And God's promise on the flip side of this excuse is, and we're going to be using these these four G's that we've used before because we find them in different places of Scripture. And I, it's helpful for me to have something to, to hang this on when I think about this. The promise is that God is great. So you don't have to be in control. Moses, God says, I will be with you. He, it's interesting. He doesn't say, oh, no, Moses, you really are somebody. You're quite amazing. Did you know that, Moses? You know, I mentioned the movie I saw recently. They make Moses to be pretty cool. I mean, he's like a general and he's this valiant warrior and all this stuff. And you can go, he's kind of a Hollywood hero And in this movie I saw. And you can go, okay, that kind of Moses. Yeah. I mean, God could say, Moses, you're not nobody. You're the best fighter in Egypt. You know, but God doesn't say that. He doesn't respond to Moses that way. He responds by saying, I will be with you. God is the somebody. Moses is probably right. He's nobody. But God is somebody, and God's choosing Moses, and that makes Moses somebody. God is great, so Moses doesn't have to be in control. He doesn't have to be somebody. I think sometimes we, oftentimes, we use this excuse in different times in our life, especially when God is calling us to do something challenging, when we're at one of those crossroads, and, and we hear this talk in our head, and we can imagine other people saying, who's this guy? Who's this girl? You know? Who are they to be doing this or saying these things? And I believe God is still saying, well, that guy, that gal, they're the one that God is with. That's who they are. The God of all creation. The God of all power. That's who that person is. It's pretty amazing. The second excuse that Moses brings up, we see this in 
Moses answered, But suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say the Lord did not appear to you. Actually, this is not a terrible excuse. This sort of happens, right? Sort of already happened in some ways earlier in the story. They won't believe me, God. And God, of course, gives Moses these these various signs that he can do. And he's going to have to use these to convince people that God actually sent him. Although we'll see those aren't as convincing as Moses had hoped that they would be. They won't believe me. This is the fear of other people that's coming in here. This is the the fear that other people are going to see through him and see him for what he really is. And they're not going to believe that God is with him or that God spoke to him. The promise on the flip side of this excuse is that God is glorious. So you don't have to fear others. This is a second G. God is glorious. Um, When we talk about God's glory, the the Hebrew word is kavod. It's weightiness, heaviness. So I I always think back to the 80s because, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. And, you know, back then it was like, that's really heavy. You know, have you ever seen Back to the Future? When, have you ever seen that movie? And uh, he goes to the future and they're talking about things. Being, or he, he's using the 80s. He goes to the past. That's right. He goes to the past back in the 60s. He's from the 80s, right? Or the early 90s, was it? I don't remember. But he's, he keeps saying things are heavy. And someone goes, is there something wrong with gravity in your time? I mean, why is everything so heavy in your time, right? God being... Glorious God being weighty, God being heavy, is the idea that God's um, presence in our life is so powerful that the fear, we don't fear others around us. What we were concerned about is God's opinion of us and what God thinks of us. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. There's only one person whose opinion matters. God is going to demonstrate his power through Moses, not just with these signs he gave him here, but we're going to get to all the plagues and everything. The interesting thing is that Moses only has to be obedient. He only has to pay attention to God. He doesn't have to pay attention to what the king, the Pharaoh will say. He doesn't have to pay attention to what the current elders and leaders of the Israelites have to say. He only has to listen to God. God will do the rest. Well, Moses is still working here. He's still trying to get out of this somehow, out of this challenge. So if we look at verse 410, I think a lot of us would want to say this. I know I certainly have felt this way many times in my life, especially when I first started preaching. Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I've never been eloquent. Now, you have to remember this is translation from Hebrew, right? Because otherwise there's a lot of irony there that Moses is using the word eloquent, saying he's not a good speaker. But what he's trying to say is, I'm terrible at speaking, God. He says, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you've spoken to me. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. You know, this comes up in other places of the Bible. The other person who talks about themselves this way is the Apostle Paul. He says the exact same thing in one of his letters. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you had to look at two people on either side of Jesus who were probably most influential in leading God's people and speaking and teaching, I mean, we can, the, the tradition is that this whole Pentateuch is attributed to Moses. Whether that's true or not, it's a lot of what we have is in our Old Testament in that law section in those powerful first five books is attributed to Moses. 
A lot of our New Testament is attributed to the Apostle Paul. And both of them said, God, I'm just not a very good speaker. I'm slow. I stumble over my words. God uses people like that. Not the ones that we think of, that we see on TV. I mean, God uses them too. But the ones, the really big ones God uses are those who God uses through their weakness, not through their strength. So this is what Moses says. He's, he's saying, I'm not a good speaker. <clears throat> the promise here that I want to hang on to is the promise that God is good. So you don't have to look elsewhere. God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere. And you see this in the text because God says, okay, Moses, who is it exactly that gives speech to human beings? Who makes them blind or, or, or to see or deaf or to hear? And he's pointing out to Moses that he has already given Moses all these amazingly good things. Moses can speak. Moses can see. Moses can hear. Moses can do these things and God is pointing out to his goodness and he's saying if I'm good enough to give you these things I'm good enough to help you speak Moses I can do this God is good you don't have to look elsewhere and the other thing we want to there's these tie in together but when Moses says this or that when we say this to God as an excuse God I really am not very good at talking to people about your love or your goodness there's other people who are good at that, but it's not really me. Who exactly is Moses comparing himself to when he says he's not a good speaker? Compared to who, Moses? Who, do we, who are we comparing himself to, ourselves to? You know, I was at a, one of my baseball games the other day, and I had one of my kids pitching, and he was doing a great job. I mean, he, did, he was doing phenomenal, and it, it, she's keeping our book for us, the scorebook, and so I went to check with her on pitch count. And um, she says, oh, you know, he's really struggling. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's doing great. You know, she's a mom. She's all anxious whenever he's pitching. And, and she said, well, she goes, yeah, but he's not compared to, da- to Davey, this other kid we have pitches. He's just, you know, he's, he's a great pitcher for his age. Lights out. And I said, well, don't compare him to Davey then. <laughs> I mean, we, we do this all the time, don't we? God, I'm not very good compared to that person. Well, why are we comparing ourselves to other people? God is good. He's given us so many good things. He's made us so unique. He wants us to be the way we are. We don't need to compare ourselves to others. God tells Moses, I've given you all these good things. I'm going to be with you, Moses. I'm good enough to help you when you're struggling to speak. And then we get to excuse number four. This is in 413. It's like Moses is running out of excuses here. He's, he's kind of said all the different things. And so he kindly, finally kind of gets to the heart of it. And he just says flat out, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> okay, how many of us have felt like that when God has asked us to do something? God, send someone else. In fact, I've, I'm ashamed to say I have heard before pastors basically say, look, if you don't step up, God's going to use someone else. Okay, I'm not saying God can't use someone else, but if God is calling you to do something, it's a reason for that. God created every human being who's ever lived exactly the way he wanted to create them, made them all unique and all their diversity. If he's calling you to do something, it's because he made you to do it. 
And while it's true that God can do things a lot of different ways, that's a terrible excuse. God, God will find someone else, essentially what Moses is saying. God will find someone else. The truth is here, Moses is revealing his heart. Moses is pretty happy with his life as it is, I think. God, send someone else. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't want to deal with all this. Moses would rather take the life in front of him rather than the unknown. And this also ties back to the idea that God is good and we don't have to look elsewhere. Moses is thinking, if I go to Egypt, I'm going to lose all this good stuff God has given me. He can't see all that we see in the rest of the story and the amazing goodness that God works through him yet. So he just wants to hold on to what he has. He doesn't want to have to go and experience the unknown. You've heard of Good Samaritan laws, which of course, of course comes out of the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. It's a shame that there are places that we actually have to legislate and make laws that say, if you see someone who is hurting or someone who's in need, you have an obligation to help them. Because so often people don't. And then when I was studying psychology as an undergrad, we were learning about, I was doing, taking class on social psychology. We learned about these different social phenomenons. And I don't remember the name of this one, but there's this phenomenon where they know, so you know, psychologists have studied and they know that if there's a group of people, the larger the crowd, the larger the group of people around when something is happening, bad to somebody else, the less likely those people are to help. You think it would be the other way around, right? You think that if you were in a place that was pretty desolate, if you were on an, on an empty street and there's only like a couple of people around and you got attacked, that you'd be not as likely to get help as if you were, say, at a concert. Actually, the opposite's true. Because people all look and they say, somebody else is going to help. I'm sure there's so many people here, someone's going to do it. And everybody says that. There's been stories of women being attacked outside of apartment buildings in New York City when the whole building could hear it and look outside and everybody else thought someone else was calling 911. And no one ever, ever picked up the phone. Send someone else, God. I don't want to get involved. I don't want it to be me. I was thinking maybe we should... Uh, Maybe we should create t-shirts for ourselves that say someone else. Just like that. So just a reminder. That's us. We're the someone else that God wants to send. Right? The promise here that I want to hang on to is that God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself. Because I think what's really underneath all of this is that idea, I'm going to fail, God. I'm going to fail, so just, just get somebody else to do it. And what's interesting when we look at the text is, did you read, did you catch up on the point that it says when Moses said this, God's anger was kindled against Moses. That word kindled is interesting because he's standing in front of a burning bush. And we know that when God's anger is kindled, there's a possibility of fire, right? I mean, God could have just simply smoked Moses right there and been done with it. 
I was thinking about the, uh, the volcano that's erupting in Hawaii this week and how, you know, in the Hawaiian culture, there's a belief that there's this god, Pele, who lives in the volcano who can get angry and can kind of bring out fire. But the truth is the god of all creation, of every volcano on every planet that we haven't discovered, is standing there having a conversation with Moses in front of a burning bush that's not burning. And God's anger is kindled against Moses because Moses is just flat out refusing to do what God wants him to do. And what's God do? People say they don't see a lot of grace in the Old Testament. I don't think they're looking very hard. Because in this story, what does God do? God says, okay, Moses, your brother Aaron, I'm sending him, he's on his way. And I'm going to allow him to go with you. And I think there's two parts of this. One of it is, Moses is, is fearful. He's worried about doing this on his own. God's going to bring someone who's already living in Egypt to be with him to go as a representative so that Moses isn't on his own. So Aaron's going to go with him. He'll be with him as a supporter, as a friend, as family. That's part of it. And then the second side of it is Moses won't have to actually speak if he doesn't want to. God will use Aaron. So God still says, Moses, I'm still using you. I'm going to speak to you. And then you're going to speak to Aaron. And then Aaron can speak to Pharaoh or, or whoever else. This is complete graciousness on God's part. God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. Yes, we could sit here and probably go through the checkboxes and talk about all the different things that we should have done in our lives. I don't care how old you are, you can start going through that. The things that I should have done if I had been a good disciple of Jesus. And we can make ourselves feel really guilty and really terrible about it and use it as yet another excuse for why we shouldn't do anything now. Or we can realize that God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves. He's willing to work with what we give him. God is gracious to Moses. Of course, when we get to the New Testament... We see in Jesus that he fulfills all these things that Moses was unable to do. He fulfills all the things that we're unable to do. Jesus is confronted with the same human temptations. He's in the garden and he is struggling with the fact that God is calling him to go to this horrible death on the cross. To take the sins of the world upon his shoulders. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says... Not my will, God, but yours be done. Can you imagine if Jesus had said, you know, I'm nobody. I'm just a carpenter's son from Nowheresville, Nazareth, backwoods. Or if Jesus had said, nobody will believe that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the son of God, which was mostly true at the time. Or if Jesus had said, I'm really not that good of a speaker. (laughs) I think Jesus from what he taught, probably was a pretty good speaker, but we all feel that way when we have to talk to others about these important things. Or if if Jesus had said God could find somebody else to do it. And that may seem ridiculous. You go, well, Jesus would never do that. But you have to remember, we as Christians claim Jesus was fully God and fully human. That the difference was that Jesus faced all those temptations and he overcame all those temptations. He did what we were unable to do, what anyone else Everyone else was unable to do. And then when his disciples said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray to our Father? And Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, which I forgot to do this morning, didn't I? Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, 
He taught us to pray, um, your will be done. Right? Your will be done, God. It's not an easy road following God's will. Moses is going to have a really hard road ahead of him. But following that road is really the only true road worth taking in life. It's the rewarding road. So I ask you the question, you know, what crossroads do you find yourself at today? If your faith journey has been anything like mine, I always think maybe I'm going to arrive at some point. God's going to kind of go, okay, just retire now. Just, you know, kind of take it easy. But God's always challenging me. There's a hurting world around us. What crossroads are you standing at today? Maybe you feel like you're looking into the depths of a canyon and you don't know how you're going to make it down and how you're going to make it out. I would challenge you and I challenge myself to place our faith, not in ourselves, but to place our faith in the God who calls us. He's great enough to carry us on our journey when we can't do it on our own. He's glorious enough to overcome our weaknesses when others see us as broken and failing. He's good enough to make the road ahead, as hard as it is, a good and wonderful journey. And he's gracious enough to forgive us when we get off track and when we fail. Let's pray. God, it's so easy for us to talk about these things and the safety of this place. But when we get out into the world of challenges and other people, it's a lot harder for us. And so we are asking right now for the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit to be with us as we go. Help us to see ourselves with your eyes, Lord. Help us to put our trust and our strength in your ability, not in our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.